Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. Hey, we all know the term born again. We know what that means, right? We've got that down. But religious leader Nicodemus did not understand it, so Jesus defined it for him. What if Jesus' definition of born again doesn't match your definition? Whose mind needs to change? So we're doing this series about how Jesus won people. Last week, we looked at how he won the disciples and what his expectation of following him is. He says, follow me. He said that your expectation really is obedience. The way you love me is to obey me. Today, we're going to look at this dialogue that Jesus has with this religious scholar named Nicodemus. And we're going to be looking at his, not just what his expectation of salvation is, we're going to be looking at what his theology of salvation is. Yeah, we're, we're going to be kind of picking Jesus's brain today to see what he thinks about salvation and what it's really about. And we know that what it's really about is redemption. It's about redeeming this broken world to himself. It's about God getting back what was stolen from him. So as I said, last week he told the disciples to follow, to follow me. Um, I thought I had, there we go. Jesus' call to the disciples was to follow him. And today we're going to look at this theology discussion that he has with Nicodemus. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I got up this morning at 4 o'clock in the morning to rework this sermon because I realized it was probably three sermons long. And so, uh, seriously, this could be a whole sermon series, like 10 sermons. So, I'm telling you, I just got to get through this quickly. So, no heckling this morning. Let me get through this. All right. <laughs> See, he's heckling now. Look at him heckling now. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. You're totally good. So, at this point, Jesus' ministry had been kind of small scale. His ministry had been confined to the small towns, small villages up in Galilee, away from the center of all the attention. But now, suddenly, he goes to the capital city. He goes to where all the action's really happening. He goes to Jerusalem. And there, he begins to teach and do many signs and wonders. So you can imagine that it's at this time when the Pharisees, who are headquartered there in Jerusalem, the capital city at the temple, you can imagine that now their attention is starting to get drawn to Jesus. They start to look to Jesus and they start to kind of pay attention to his ministry to see what he's really all about. What is, who is this guy and what is he doing? He's not one of us. Yet God's clearly doing something through him. What's happening here? Is he for real or what? So they're starting to pay attention now to Jesus. But then Jesus does something that's really unexpected. He does something while in Jerusalem that nobody could have guessed he would have done. And that almost kind of goes against the grain of how we think about Jesus. He goes to the temple and he sees what's happening in the temple. He sees that the worship business is strong in the temple. 
The money changers are changing money and cheating people. People are selling stuff there in the temple. All kinds of commerce is going on. People are looking to make money off of the worship of God, and this ticks Jesus off. You know what he does? He, he makes a whip really quickly out of ropes, and he goes in there, and he starts thrashing around and he upturns their tables and he knocks their money over onto the floor and he kicks them out. Jesus clears the temple. I mean, he disrupts everything. He turns everything upside down and this certainly gets the Pharisees' attention. I mean, everybody, everybody's business now is upside down for a minute and Jesus leaves the temple and the Pharisees are like, what just happened? Right, all of the all the people there are like, what just happened? And it's it's right after this where Jesus passionately protects his temple because the temple is the place of worship, right? Right? The temple is the holy spot, right? The temple is the place where God and man interact together, and Jesus clearly, passionately hates a desecrated temple. Okay, he, do you understand? He hates the desecrated temple, so he clears it, and it's right after this moment, right after he shakes the Pharisees' world pretty hard, that Jesus is approached by one of the Pharisees, a scholar who is apparently investigating deeply into who Jesus is and what he's doing. So I've had to cut a lot of this just to save time today, but let's go straight to John 3, and we're going to just kind of unpack John 3 today as John describes this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is apparently one of the higher-up guys in the Pharisee order. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, is Nicodemus patronizing Jesus? Well, maybe a little bit. I sure have heard it preached that way. I sure have read commentaries that say he was that way. But I don't know. I think Jesus, sorry, I think Nicodemus has a soft heart toward Jesus. I think Nicodemus is really truly wanting to know more about Jesus because we know about Nicodemus that he did not become a disciple of Christ, but he sure became sympathetic to Christ. Later on, we see Nicodemus arguing for Jesus in front of the Pharisees. And then when Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus is present at the grave. He's the one that brought all of the spices and perfumes, and he helped prepare Jesus' body. So there's something to this guy, Nicodemus. Something's going on there. His heart may just be hard. So yeah, he might be patronizing Jesus a little bit at this stage, but there's something going on there. And Jesus doesn't respond to the patronization. He doesn't respond to the compliments paid right off the top. Jesus goes straight to what Nicodemus is looking for. And here's what he says. Here's how Jesus responds. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, first blank on your page, you must be born again. I was going to get there in about five minutes, but we'll go ahead and go there now. (laughs) The first blank is you must be born again. This is what Nicodemus lived for. He wanted to see the kingdom. He wasn't interested in being born again. He wanted to see the kingdom. This was what Nicodemus lived for. So Jesus is tapping into so much more than Nicodemus' happiness. You know, when we talk about coming to Christ today, you know, we talk about how it'll make you happy, how it'll help you, how it'll make your life better. Nicodemus' goal wasn't happiness in life. His goal was to see the kingdom. He had devoted his whole life to it. That's why he was a Pharisee. He was all about being in the word and discovering uh, how God was going to one day send the Messiah who would bring the kingdom of God. Nicodemus' whole outlook on life was to long for the coming kingdom of God. He's tapping in, Jesus is tapping into Nicodemus's purpose in life. And you got to hand it to Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee because he had figured out something that you and I have difficulty realizing. And that is that you and I will only ever find our life's purpose in him. We'll only ever find out what we were really created to be when we come to him because God designed you for his kingdom. You are designed to fully function and fully operate in his kingdom. You and I have a hard time understanding that now because all we can see is this fallen, broken kingdom, right? We're born into this fallen, brokenness. And so we function in a partial, limited, broken, fallen way. Our lives are defined to a large degree by the sin that we're born into. And so it limits us from being able to realize our full capacity as human beings. But God designed you to be fully functional and fully capable in his kingdom. Don't you want to see the kingdom of God? You know, we want to see it. I mean, we look around and we'd love to see it here, but all we can see here is the greed, the abuse. All we can see here are the friends that stab you in the back. We look around and we see the homelessness problem, the addiction all around us, war and suffering, pain and strife and division. We just see all of the results of sin all around us. And doesn't it wear you out? I had a friend, a Christian friend just this week just looked at me and said, I'm just so tired of all this. I just, I just want this to be over. He wasn't talking about suicide. He was just saying this kingdom is bad. It's awful, and I just want it to finally end because this friend of mine knows that the kingdom of God is where God and man live together. They fellowship together and enjoy joy and peace and purpose together. In the kingdom of God, there's no sorrow and no tears. In the kingdom of God, there's always light, never darkness. In the kingdom of God, there are no news channels and no political parties. In the kingdom of God, there are no elections. There are no wartime 
airstrikes. There is no poverty. There is no hunger. There is no racism. There is no division. And every person fulfills their purpose for existence. So, of course, there's everlasting peace and joy. Don't you want to see the kingdom? Don't you want to be part of that? When the kingdom comes, it drives out all of the things of the broken kingdom. It drives out all of that pain and suffering and weariness. Don't you want that? Jesus is very clear. In order to see the kingdom, you must be born again. Now, we think we know what this phrase means, born again, right? It's a kind of a popular, established phrase in our terminology and in our culture today. But even though Nicodemus was a super well-educated religious scholar, he had never heard this phrase before, right? Because Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. And Nicodemus' response in verse 4 is this, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Jesus is happy to explain that he's talking about something different. He's talking about a restart, a rebirth, but he's talking about something different than Nicodemus's understanding of a physical rebirth. So he's happy to explain it to us, but I want us to be real careful as we walk through Jesus's explanation of born again and we make sure we understand what Jesus thinks about born again and how it might contrast with how we think about being born again. I hate to say it, but I think this is one of these critical New Testament teachings straight from the mouth of Jesus that we tend to skip over and we don't really invest in. So here's what he says. Here's how Jesus describes it a little bit for us in the very next he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. So Jesus is talking about two births, right? He's talking about two births, uh, water and Spirit. He's talking about two different things here, physical birth and spiritual birth. You've already had the first one, Nicodemus. You've already done this one, but now if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to get out of this broken kingdom and get to the kingdom you've been longing for, the kingdom where your purpose lies, you have to be born of the Spirit also. You have to start over into something completely new. It's born of water and born of Spirit. Why do you think Jesus here says born of water and spirit and why doesn't he say born of flesh and spirit i would expect him to say flesh not water but he says water so i had to think about this for a little bit i, I looked in some commentaries to see what they were saying and different commentators have different thoughts about this and they explain it in different ways but when i thought about it i just kind of had to think about this born of water why does jesus say born of water think about it think about what water would mean to a desert dweller in those days now jerusalem is not in the desert but it's on the edge of the desert 
All right, we were there last year. We'll be there again in June. I hope you'll go with us. Uh, but it's on the edge of the desert. So literally, literally, you're north, right, of town, or you're east of town, or you're west of town, and everything is pretty green. Everything is, is pretty green, but, but arid and dry. I mean, they're growing all kinds of crops there. They brought incredible irrigation into this area. Uh, and, it, you know, the hillsides are green, but it's, it's not green like we see North Georgia green, especially in June when we go. Everything's kind of browned up a little bit because while there is life there, it, it kind of dries up a little bit through the summer until the rainy season in the winter. But south of Jerusalem, I mean, you get outside of Jerusalem by just a couple of miles, and all of a sudden you find yourself in the desert. I mean, you are in the desert. All those hills around you and all those valleys are brown with dirt. That's all you got there. It's hot and it's desert. And think about what, what water would be to somebody who lived in these conditions. I, I remember last June when I was there, uh, we would get out down in the south part of the country in the Negev. We'd go to Masada or we'd go to En Gedi. And I mean, it's blistering hot and it's not just sun hot, but then you also got the heat radiating up off of, off of the sand and the rock below you, don't you, Lori? I mean, you got hot coming from both directions. And you're just walking around like, oh my gosh. And you sort of start to wilt really quickly. And we'd walk around and look at stuff and talk about stuff. And then, you know, just a little bit later, we'd get back on the air-conditioned tour bus. And the first thing I'd do is I'd grab my water bottle and I would guzzle water after that. I needed it after being out in that hot, parched, desert land. You know, you can live for days, for weeks without food. I don't know why you'd want to. But you can live for days or weeks without food, but you cannot go long without water. I mean, you need water to live physically. Your flesh is totally dependent on water to be able to live. I can't live without it. And so Jesus is saying you must be born of water. You must be a person who can't live without water, and you must be born of the Spirit. What he's saying is just the way your body longs for water, so your soul longs for the Spirit. Just the way your body can't live without the water, so your soul cannot live without the Spirit. Is that us today? Have we been born again in such a way to where we just crave the Spirit in our lives? Where we feel that we cannot live without Him. I've got to get back to Him. How can I get more of Him in my life? I want to be in His Word. I want to be praying. I want to be in church, worshiping together with the people of God. I just long for Him and need Him in my life. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 42, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O Lord. I thirst for God the living God. 
mean, that's, that's why we even do this together on Sunday mornings is because we just love God and we want to love him even more. We want to just whet your appetite a little bit so that when you go through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it doesn't just stop here. You don't just come here and take a sip once a week from him, but we hope that this just engenders in you a desire for him every single day of the week and that you will be a worshiper of him all the time. Ezekiel 36, not sure if I kept this slide. Yeah, uh, he told us about the day when we could be born again because of the Messiah. And he said, that's when I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean and your filth will be washed away and you'll no longer worship idols and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and I'll give you a tender, responsive heart. I'll put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Oh, my soul just longs for him. I'm just so sick and tired of this kingdom. I just want this kingdom to finally end, and I just want to be with him in his kingdom. Don't you? Don't you long for him? Jesus keeps going. He's not done talking about it. He says in verses 7 and 8, he says, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying, of course you don't understand, Nicodemus. Of course you don't get it because you are not a person of the Spirit. You're a person of the flesh. You're a person of this life. You can't control the wind. It does what it wants to do, right? That was true in Jesus' day, and it's just as true today. If the wind wants to blow the roof off the Pepsi plant downtown, it's going to blow the roof off, right? It does what it wants to do. And you and I can't control it. What Jesus is trying to communicate with us is the Spirit does what the Spirit wants to do. And the Spirit is the one that lightens your heart and opens your mind. The Spirit is the one that does this to you. It's not something you can manufacture. It's not something you can work up. It's not something you can earn yourself. The Holy Spirit does this to you. Nicodemus still doesn't quite get it in verse 9. He says, how, how can these things be? And Jesus answers him in verses 10 through 13. He says, you are the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive our testimony. He says, I've told you earthly things, and you do not believe, so how can, I be how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? things no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the son of man the point of this is you can't understand because you're still a person of the flesh the spirit does this to you Nicodemus you've got to unlearn everything you've learned because if you learned the law you learned the character of God and you learned how bad of a sinner you were. If you learned the law, you learned that there's a giant gap between who God is and who you are. And that is a great gap that you can never climb because the law is clear. The law reveals our sin. It shows us that we can never make up the difference, but we're gonna keep trying and we're gonna keep trying 
and we're going to keep trying. That's what the law says, Nicodemus, but you've got to unlearn that law because no matter how much you keep trying, this isn't something that you do to yourself. If you're going to come to God, if you're going to see the kingdom, if you're going to be born again, that's something that the Holy Spirit does to you. It's not something that you earn yourself. It's not something that you do yourself. You've got head knowledge, but you don't know him in your heart. You're born of the water, you're born of the flesh, but you have not yet been born by the Spirit. It's something that he does. In fact, the next blank on your page is that only God, only God can open a mind and a heart. Only God, through the Holy Spirit, can draw people to himself. So you've got people, you've got people that you've listed on a card, your three in 2023, three people that you're hoping that God's going to use you in their life to bring them to Christ, or at least to plant some seeds in them, but only God can draw them to himself. So you can't make convincing enough of an argument to do it. You're, you're not going to win them with your massive intellectual capacity. You, you're not, you can't. God may use your massive intellectual capacity to draw him to himself, but only God can open a mind and a heart. God can use your conversations to draw them through your dialogue. In fact, tonight, tonight in this room at five o'clock, we're having our final open conversations class for you to learn how to have conversations with lost people and I'd just like to invite you I, I know I know you may not have signed up we had a kind of a full class already signed up and we bought dinner for everybody on the list but the last time we had an open class we had we had a few people that were no-shows we had several no-shows because, you know, you sign up for something and then a, a couple of weeks go by and you just you forget about it or you get a better offer or whatever. So here's what I'm going to count on. I'm going to count on a few no-shows for tonight. So if you want to come to the conversations class so that you can learn how to better be used by God as he opens, well, there it went, as he opens minds and hearts around you, if you want to learn to be used by God in this way, come to the class tonight. It's from 5 o'clock until, what, 7.30 or 8 o'clock? So it's a long class, but there's a break for dinner in between. And look, just trust me, there's going to be seats available. Come this evening to this class. It'll really, really be good, and it'll help you be used by God. So far, all the reviews uh, have been super positive about this class. And uh, there is one more after this one, but it's in a life group, so it's kind of locked to that group. So come tonight. This is going to be our last chance. And not only that, but... With your three that you've got, man, you should be praying for your three. Man, I hope in your life group you are taking time to pray by name for those three. I hope every day you, you've got them on your mirror or you've got them in your car or wherever you are looking all the time. And I hope you're praying by name for those three because if only God can open a mind and a heart, what this tells me is this is a supernatural miracle when it happens. We are praying for miracles to happen. Do you believe it can happen? Do you believe those three can come to Christ? 
Do you believe that God can use you for that? Come on, do you believe it? Well, come to the class and be praying for those three. So Jesus is explaining all this stuff, and Nicodemus is having a hard time working through it in his head. Water and spirit being reborn, born again. What does this really mean? And so Jesus says something next that this very biblically literate Pharisee will understand. And this is powerful. In John 3, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus references something uh, that this guy, that Nicodemus, should fully be able to understand. In the book of Numbers, we find the story where uh, the people of Israel had been um, rescued by God out of Egypt, and they're traveling from place to place, and all of a sudden they get somewhere, and once again, the people of Israel begin complaining. They're like, well, what, what are we doing here? This is stupid, and we hate all this. It, we, we eat a lot better back home in Egypt, and now this manna tastes terrible to us, and we just want to go back how come God's left us here they sinned against God the rescuer and so God allowed there to be poisonous snakes all among the people they kind of got snake infested and many people got bit by these poisonous venomous snakes folks started dying from the snake bites and they were rampant all over the place and so God told Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and that if people would just believe in God, repent from their sin, look to the snake, then they would be healed. The people were like, dude, we've sinned against God. What were we thinking? We're sorry. And they looked to the snake and anyone who looked at the snake would be healed and would not die from the snake's venom. What Jesus is saying right here is he's saying that we're all snake bit. That all of us have the venom of sin coursing through our veins and it's killing us. We're all dying. The wages of sin is death. We're all dying from sin. And he says that if anyone will look to me, if anyone will trust me, if anyone will believe that my sacrifice is good enough, then they will have eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus takes that death into himself. He dies on our behalf, and he rose again three days later. And if we just look to him in faith, then we will have eternal life. That's good news, am I right? In other words, next blank on your page, Jesus is the sole source of new life. Jesus is the sole source. You can't get it from Amazon. You can't get it in your Facebook. You can't order it over the phone. It doesn't come in a cereal box. They don't deliver it from Walmart. It's not going to come through all the verses you ever want to memorize or all the hard, good work that you want to do. Jesus is the sole source of new life. And then Jesus spells it out so clearly for us and for Nicodemus. He spells it out in such a great way that we've taken what he says next and we've made t-shirts 
and coffee mugs out of what he says. The next thing he says is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Come on, praise the Lord, am I right? There's so much here, there's so much here in this verse. I'm telling you, I can do five or six easy sermons out of this verse alone, these two verses alone. I could easy do that, but I just, I want you today to just catch one thing out of this. I want you to catch one thing. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you don't catch anything else this morning, this is kind of what's on my heart for you today is that the value of the gift in some way demonstrates the value of the receiver of the gift. God so loved you that he gave the ultimate gift, the life of his own son. What does that say about the way God values you? What does that say about his value of you? And what should that say about your perspective on yourself? Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you're broken. Yes, you are doomed to judgment without him. But he loves you so much that he gave it all so that you could come to him. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you love us that much. Next blank on your page, the value of the gift demonstrates how God values you. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3. He wishes we would really get this. He says, may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is for you is may you experience the love of Christ though it's too great to understand fully then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God Paul in Romans says nothing can separate us from the love of God nothing nothing it's that good look to him trust in him believe in him we love John 3, 16 and 17 because we have it on all of our t-shirts and coffee mugs and everywhere. Jesus is defining what it means to be born again. But has anybody ever quoted the next four verses to you? Verses 18, 19, and 20, and 21. I mean, we know 16 and 17. We love them. You know, they're our life verses. But do you know the next four because it's here where Jesus, he takes us a little deeper into his thought about what it means to be born again, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be you and me. So he's defining us, but yet we don't talk about these verses so much. Look at what he says next. He says, whoever believes in him, that's the son of man, whoever believes in him, um, this is John 3, 18 through 21. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Praise the Lord. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. So there already has been judgment made against those 
who do not believe. Whoever does not believe has already been judged, has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay, how bad is that? Well, let me tell you, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He goes on and he says this, for everyone Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Did you see this? Everyone who does wicked things hates the light this is John writing this John presents Jesus in John chapter 1 as the light right he is the light you know he's described later in the scripture as the father God is the father of lights according to James and everyone who does wicked things hates the light Jesus is contrasting the wicked person with the born-again person. And what he's clearly showing us is that the born-again person does not straddle two kingdoms. The born-again person does not play in this playground on Sunday, but then plays in a whole other field on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The born-again person is not someone who is double-minded, double-tongued. The born-again person is who they say they are, and they are walking in the light. This, this convicts me hard. Because today in, in Christianity, we are so permissive about sin. We're so okay with somebody coming to the front of the room and crying a tear and praying a prayer and then living like hell all week long. Hey, who am I to judge? But Jesus says the judgment's happened already. He says they've already been condemned because they're living darkness, so they must hate the light. Why are we so permissive? Why are we so permissive even in our own lives? Why do we think it's okay to straddle the two kingdoms? Why are we so permissive with internet porn? Why are we so permissive about substance use? Why are we so permissive about the way our tongue works? Why are we so permissive about chasing after money all the time? Jesus says there is judgment already for these things. He is saying that if you're born again, you're in the light and you are not in the darkness. There's no room for darkness. There's no straddling. Jesus doesn't do gray. He doesn't tolerate it. He hates it. And he has reserved judgment for it. Remember what Jesus did right before this dialogue. He cleansed 
the temple because Jesus passionately hates a desecrated temple. And today, you are the temple. Today, follower of Christ, born again, you are the temple. Why do you think that Jesus is okay with your money changers? Why do you think he's okay with your business of worship dealings? Why do you think he's okay with the corruption and the sin in your life? Why would he have this bipolar split personality syndrome? I promise you, he doesn't. Judgment has already come against your sin and Jesus has taken it, but he wants the temple cleansed. He wants the temple cleansed. James says, what good is it? In James 2, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see your brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough Unless that faith produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Jesus ends with this thought. That's the end of the conversation. He ends it with, hey, you're either black or white. You're either born of the spirit or you're just born of water. You can't straddle the kingdom And so if you want to know Jesus' theology on salvation, it's faith that makes a difference. It's faith that changes your life. It's trusting in him enough to actually say, I will follow you and I will give up everything else to be like you, to be with you, to walk closely with you. So my challenge to you this morning, last blank, is to clean out the temple clean out the temple. What does that look like in your life? What does that mean for you this morning? What does it mean for your habits? What do you need to clean out of your closet? How do you need to change the way you talk and act? What patterns do you need to move differently in in your life? Let's clean the temple and let's be the children of light that he calls us to be. Amen? Amen.